finished our series on the character of God, and so thinking and praying what to do next. And so uh, what I'd like to do over the Sunday mornings available to me between now and Christmas is to look at the first two chapters of Luke. So we're going to look at Luke chapter 1 and Luke chapter 2 over the next few weeks leading up to Christmas Day. And hopefully I can time it right and we finish Christmas Day in Luke chapter 2 with the birth of Christ. Otherwise, we're going to be skipping that section while we keep going and then come back to it. So, uh, but hopefully we're going to finish on that day, Christmas Day. I'm preaching Christmas Day, so hopefully we'll get it coordinated for then. But that's my desire, at least, between now and then. So let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. We do thank you that we can come together to uh, worship you. We thank you, Father, that we can come together and study your word. We thank you, Father, that uh, um, we have the word of God given to us by inspiration that allows us, Father God, to uh, get from you, Father God, insights and understanding and leading. We pray that, Father, you instruct us through your word this day. Just may your word be a blessing to our hearts. Give me wisdom, I pray, as I minister your word that I be used of you for your glory. And guide our time together now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the unusual features of the book of Luke is that it gives to you and I much data or much information that the other Gospels do not record for us. So when you read Matthew and Mark and John, you don't find much of what's written in the Gospel of Luke. And we can be indebted to Luke as well as the Holy Spirit for their careful inclusion of many of the events that took place surrounding the life of Christ that we don't read about in the other Gospels. In fact, Luke alludes to this in the first part of this chapter, in Luke chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. He says, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order a declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us, even as they delivered them unto us, which, were, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things, from the very first to write in the in order, most excellent, Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. And it's my desire for us to take a look at the events that surround the birth of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's never been two boys born into human history who've had such an impact upon the human race as John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, think of the great, of the past, Alexander the Great, Napoleon Bonaparte, George Washington, Martin Luther, John Newton, Captain Cook, and countless others who were notable men throughout the ages who have been born. And their lives have had an impact. The circumstances around their lives and the circumstances have changed around their lives in which they live, both politically and spiritually, because of the character of those individuals. But no one is quite equal to these two, John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. One was the unique and totally divine Son of God, the other his forerunner. And as we come to Luke chapter 1, we find that there has been no word from the prophet, uh, for, to the prophets from God for some 400 years these have been known as the 400 silent years. From the end of Malachi to the beginning of Matthew, God had been silent. 
But with coming of the angel to Zacharias here in Luke chapter 1, God broke that silence. And with the breaking of that silence, God intervenes in the affairs of mankind, changing the lives of individuals forever. The beginning of Luke chapter 1, Israel lies in darkness. They live in unbelief. By sending an angel to announce the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus Christ, the Lord invades the silence with the announcement of salvation for all men in the person of Jesus Christ. The entire first chapter of Luke is the story of God intervening in the affairs of mankind. Humanity that would have been content to carry on as usual. God, however, intervened the greatest love story that's ever been known. As we consider the account of God intervening in the lives of men, our attention is drawn firstly to Zacharias and Elizabeth here in Luke chapter 1. We read about them in verse 5. There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abbi, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And these two individuals play an important part in the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. And I believe there are at least four facts involved in the call of these two. Four facts that, when properly understood, will lead you and I to a proper understanding of God's will and a proper response to the call of God on our lives. We'll see that when it comes to God intervening the affairs of men, he chooses the time. He chooses the people. He chooses the methods. And he chooses the purpose. And today, we'll consider just the first of these by way of setting the scene for the rest of them. Know with me then the first of these four facts that when God works, when God intervenes, he chooses the time. That's here in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, which Bryce read for us earlier. Luke starts out by saying this, For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth... ...have taken in hand simply suggests this. Luke wrote his gospel knowing that many had already written histories of the life of Jesus. Okay? Many have taken in hand to set forth this truth. He said, I'm not going to tell you something that you don't already know. What I'm about to tell you has already been set forth, has already been written about Jesus Christ. And this may be a reference to the works of Matthew and Mark, but it's also probably a reference to many other biographies of Jesus that weren't inspired of the Holy Spirit that were written and now were available at the time of Luke. The point is that the previously mentioned writings contain things already commonly known, commonly believed among the Christians of Luke's day. When Luke writes this, what he's writing is not unknown. It is common knowledge, particularly amongst the believers of Luke's day. Remember, Luke was not a disciple. Luke was not there in the beginning when Christ was on, walking around the streets of 
Jerusalem and around the streets of Palestine and preaching. Luke was not a member of that group. Luke was a Gentile who got saved later under the ministry of Paul. One commentator said this, when Luke wrote, most Christians already knew all about the life of Jesus, both from the oral accounts passed on by the original disciples and by the biographies that had already been written. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 2, we read this, Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. Luke tells us that these prior accounts, these things that he is referring to, that he's now going to repeat for us in his gospel, these prior accounts of John the Baptist and the life of Christ, particularly of the life of Christ, were based on the words of eyewitnesses. Now this is an important fact. Because what he's going to give to us is not hearsay evidence. This is not hearsay. This is not something, story that somebody's made up and there's no factual evidence for this. This is first-hand testimony. Luke has listened to first-hand testimony of all that happened of Jesus Christ and he is now going to write down that testimony. He's going to give to us the testimony of Christ. And he's talking witnesses like the apostles, like Mary, like Martha, and many others who walked and talked with the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke has common knowledge of them. Luke has talked to many of them. Luke has first-hand testimony from them. And their testimony is trustworthy. Now we know that Luke was not one of those who was an eyewitness of the events from the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. Luke was not there. Luke probably heard about it, but he was not there involved in that ministry of the Lord. He wasn't one of the 12 apostles. Yet here in Luke chapter 1, Luke inserts himself into the same line, the same position as those others, particularly Matthew and Mark. He puts himself in that line as those who wrote their accounts of Jesus' life from first-hand experience. And the reason he could do that, because his account, as he now records for us what it is that he has learnt, his account was based upon diligent research. That's what he says. He says, even as they delivered unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitness to the minister of the word, it seemed good to me, having had perfect understanding of all things, from the very first to write unto thee in order most excellent Theophilus. This is based upon diligent research. And eyewitness accounts. And so he has a perfect understanding of the events. And then, of course, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we must not forget that. This is an inspired book of the Bible. And so as Luke is penning his gospel, he's depending upon eyewitness accounts. He's depending on trustworthy evidence. And he's trusting on the leading of the Holy Spirit as he pens for us this account, even though he was not there to witness it for himself, he wants you and I to understand this is a trustworthy, dependable account. And he wanted to write unto thee in order, he says in verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. The phrase to write unto thee in order is that he wanted to write an orderly account of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus Christ. 
And he wanted to give that to his friend, Theophilus. He'd already read the accounts of Matthew and the accounts of Mark. They were readily available for him to read in his day. But Luke now wants to give a third account, a third account that emphasized comprehensiveness and order. You can almost see the cogs ticking in Luke's head. He's read Matthew, he's read Mark, but there's lots of things that he'd like to know. Remember, he's a doctor. So the virgin birth is going to be very important to him, very, uh, something that's going to be very fascinating for him. He's going to want to understand it more. And he gives us Luke chapter 2, tells us about the virgin birth. You can almost see the doctor in Luke uh, showing his curiosity in these matters. The events surrounding the birth of John the Baptist with uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth, the old of age, and, and they're having this child after this angel visits them is something that Luke is fascinated in. And the other Gospels don't record this for us. And you can almost see Luke you know, praying and say, Lord, I, I really would like to know more. And as he's getting eyewitness accounts, he's listening to uh, those who have uh, been present with the Lord and understand the events. He started to get a picture of it together. And now the Lord is leading him to write this book, this comprehensive book. And therefore, the Gospel of Luke is the most comprehensive Gospel of the four Gospels. We find things in Luke that are not recorded anywhere else. Often what's recorded in Matthew is also recorded in Mark and some of it even in John. But Luke is unique in many ways. A lot of what's recorded in Luke is different to the other Gospels because he's giving us the most comprehensive account, particularly of the birth of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, you know, he documents to us the story of Jesus all the way of the announcement from John the Baptist's birth to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. This gospel is also the one that emphasizes the preaching of the gospel the most. The good news that Jesus Christ came to die for sinners. The term gospel, that word gospel, is used ten times in the gospel of Luke. And it's used only once in the other gospels. It's also in Luke's writing of the book of Acts. You find it 15 times he uses the word gospel in the book of Acts. This is his focus. He wants to focus upon the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came and was born in Bethlehem of Judea, leaving heaven's glory, becoming the God incarnate to die upon a cross for you and I. That was the gospel that Jesus Christ came and died, was buried and rose again the third day that we might be saved. And Luke wants you and I to understand that so 10 times in his gospel, 15 times in the book of Acts, 25 times in total, he mentions the word gospel. Luke chapter 1 and verse 3, we're told that he's writing to Theophilus. He says, It seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of things from the very first, to write unto thee in order most excellent Theophilus. Now, we're not sure who Theophilus is. We know that he writes the book of Acts to Theophilus as well. He wants to continue the story that he left off in the first letter that he wrote to Theophilus. He now wants to give him a second one of the book of Acts, but we're not sure who Theophilus is. But there is a clue in his title. He's called Most Excellent Theophilus. That phrase, Most Excellent, gives a clue that Theophilus was probably a Roman government official 
for that's the title that was given to Roman government officials. Theophilus is more than likely a Gentile, Roman Gentile, serving in the Roman government. Who's saved? Now, wherever Theophilus was, he had already had some instruction in the faith. Because notice what he says to him in verse 4, that they made us know the certainty of those things wherein thou hast been instructed. Whoever Theophilus is, Theophilus has already been instructed in the things of the Lord. Theophilus is a man who knows the Savior. Theophilus is, is born again. Theophilus has heard, read Matthew and Mark. Theophilus has listened to the testimony. Theophilus is a man who has been instructed. And Luke wrote to Theophilus in verse 4, so that they mightest know the certainty of those things. He's writing to him to shore up his faith. He's writing to him so that Theophilus might know without a shadow of a doubt that the things that he has read in Matthew, the things he has read in Mark, the things he has learnt of others is indeed true. He's writing to ensure that Theophilus and indeed each of us will be left in no doubt as to the truth about Christ and the salvation of ours. Isn't that a wonderful book, this book of Luke? He's writing so that you and I might have confidence that everything that's written, everything that's been said is indeed absolutely true. He wants Theophilus and he wants you and I to know with certainty those things wherein thou hast been instructed. He's writing that we would be in no doubt as to who is in control. And who it was who intervened in history at the time of the birth of John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. Who was that intervened at the time of his own choosing. You and I are left in no doubt that God chose the time of his intervention. And there is no doubt that that time was perfect. And as we embark upon the study of these first two chapters of Luke, let's never forget that God never is early and God is never late when it comes to his work, when it comes to his intervention. He's always on time, and that's true here. And so notice with me here in this chapter, secondly, the days of Herod the king. The time was in the days of Herod the king. Look in verse 5. There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea. These are the days of Herod the king. Now, if you and I were living in Israel at this time of the writing of this book you and I would have known that these were dark days for the nation of Israel the spiritual leaders of Israel in this day were shackled by tradition and in many instances they were overcome with corruption they had a king by the name of Herod the Great and Herod the Great was a tyrant the time I write in the Gospel of Luke Herod was at the end of a long and terrible reign. Ethnically, he was not a Jew. He wasn't a descendant of Israel. He was a descendant of Jacob's brother Esau. Herod the Great was an Edomite. He's called Herod the Great for he was known for his spectacular building programs, which included the repairing of the temple. And because he had, had distinguished himself in conquest at war, helping defeat the enemy. One example of his building program 
is the work that he did on the temple. If you remember back in the book of Haggai, read of the people who were rebuilding Solomon's temple. If you remember, Solomon's temple was destroyed and uh, ransacked under the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And then under the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the temple was rebuilt. The city was rebuilt, the temple was rebuilt. And in Haggai, we have a record of what went on about that time. Let's go back to the book of Haggai, please. Or Haggai. So small, it often gets stuck between other ones in the Minor Prophets. I can't find it either. There we are. Okay, let's look in chapter 2 of Haggai. Chapter 2 and uh, verse 1, we read this. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw the, this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes a comparison of it as nothing? When they rebuilt the temple, it was nothing like Solomon's temple. And those who had a remembrance of Solomon's temple and all of its glory were not happy with what they saw in the time of the temple that was built under Nehemiah and Ezra, the time of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest. And the temple paled in comparison to the old one. And when Herod becomes king, when Herod takes on the role of the king of the Jews, several hundred years later, knowing how much the temple meant to the Jewish people and himself not being a Jew but an Edomite, desiring to win over the people, desiring to get the favor of the Israelites, he built the Jews a much nicer temple than the one built in Haggai's day and became known as Herod's temple. And so he was known as Herod the Great because of his building program, because of his government skills, and because of the fact that he'd won many wars, but he was known even more for his paranoid cruelty which drove him to execute many, including members of his own family. One commentator said he was as much distinguished for his cruelty and crimes as for his greatness, his cruelty and crafty. He was cruel and crafty. Another commentator said he was wealthy, politically gifted, instantly loyal, an excellent administrator and a clever enough to remain in the good graces of successive Roman emperors. His fame, uh, his famine relief was superb. And his building progress, including the temple, began in 20 BC, were admired even by his foes. But he loved power, inflicted incredibly high taxes on the people, and resented the fact that many of the Jews considered him a usurper. In his last days, suffering an illness that compounded his paranoia, he turned to cruelty and in fits of rage and jealousy killed those close associations. The commentator Barclay said, Augustus, the Roman emperor, had said bitterly, that it was safer to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Says an awful lot about this man. Herod was so paranoid to ensure that no one took away from him the title of king of the Jews. If you remember, he ordered the slaughter of all the male children two years and under in Jerusalem and uh, throughout Palestine 
after Christ was born. Remember that? Mark, Matthew chapter 1. I'm oh, sorry, Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16. Remember the wise men had come and said, where is the king of the Jews born? And, he'd call, and Herod had called in the, the, the teachers of Israel and they'd said to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And he'd sent the wise men away and he'd said, bring me word again that I'm going to come and worship him. But then the Lord had sent an angel and in a vision they, they'd been told not to go, to go back to their homeland a different way and not to go back to Herod. And of course then, Mary and Joseph and the Lord flee to Egypt. And verse 16 of Matthew chapter 2 we read, Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wrath and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coast thereof from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. So paranoia got hold of him and he didn't want anyone to take away his title, the king of the Jews, so he sought to kill the king of the Jews the Lord Jesus Christ, by killing all the babies, male children, two years of age and under. His paranoia was also seen in that nine or ten, historians aren't quite sure, of his wives were executed by Herod, one of whom he executed for no apparent reason. These were dark days for Israel. Politically, they were dark and spiritually, they were dark. Remember, God has not spoken through a prophet to the nation of Israel for 400 years. For 400 long years, the people of Israel had prayed for the day when God would intervene in the affairs of men, when God would send forth His Messiah and His Son. Israel looked hopingly, patiently for the one who would come and make things right. Jesus was that Messiah, and John was his forerunner. Come with me, if you would, to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4, last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. The last chapter of the last book of the Old Testament, God told the people of Israel this in verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, Malachi 4, 5, prophetically, is fulfilled ultimately at the end times, okay, tribulation times. But it was fulfilled in type, figuratively, in John the Baptist. It was filled in part in John the Baptist because in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 14, we read this, Matthew eleven fourteen. We read, and if you will receive this, this Elias, which was for to come. Speaking of John the Baptist, back in verse 11, verily saying to you, among them that were born of women, there was not one risen, a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding he uh, that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And then he talks about Elias, and he's talking about John the Baptist there in the context. And that promise was made to Israel 400 years earlier. In Malachi, just before God stopped speaking. And when God finally does speak, when God intervenes in the affairs of man, the first thing he does is announce the coming of John the Baptist. This one who is known as Elias in type in the Gospels. 
not promised the Messiah and one who would prepare the way for the, pe- of, uh, for the Lord before the people. And God's about to fulfill that promise here in Luke chapter 1. And so the nation, therefore, was looking for one who would come and make things right. Now, the time was right for God to intervene. God was about to intervene in a spectacular way, which we'll see next time. But today, to finish, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, please. Because not only did Jesus Christ come according to God's timing in the time of Herod the king, he also came in God's own choosing. Because if you go in Galatians chapter 4, Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, a verse we all know well. It says this, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. Now while Jesus Christ could have come at any time in history, God chose the exact time when Herod the Great was on the throne in Israel. God chose this exact time. After 400 silent years, God chose this exact time to send his son, a time in history of his choosing. And Galatians 4.4 4 says, when the fullness of time was come, when God, uh, rather, when the God-appointed time had arrived, God intervened. The expression of the fullness of time refers to the time when the world was providentially ready for the birth of the Savior. This was the time that God saw as the optimum time, the perfect time according to his perfect schedule to send the angel to announce the birth of John and the birth of Jesus Christ and indeed the coming of both of those young men. The sense is that when the time which had been predicted and when the time and when the proper time was that he should come was complete, he came. The exact period had arrived when all things were ready on the earth for him to come. The preparation was complete. The nation was ready. Mankind was ready for the coming of the Messiah. You know, historians tell us that Rome, the Roman world was in great expectation at this time. They were waiting. The Roman world was waiting a deliverer at the time of the coming of the Jesus Christ. The old religions were dying. The old philosophies that the Romans and the Jews had been following were empty and powerless to change men's lives. Strange new mystery religions were invading the empire. Religious bankruptcy and spiritual hunger was everywhere. Guzik said, Luke wrote to a first century world that was burnt out on it. If it feels good, do it. And it was obsessed by crazy superstitions of most religions. The world then as today longs for what Christianity offers, faith founded on fact. God had, been sorry, God had been preparing the world for the revival of his son. You know, from a historical point of view, as you consider the background to Luke and the events surrounding the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, Historically speaking, the Roman Empire itself helped prepare the world for the birth of the Savior. Just think about it. Roman roads connected city with city. 
and all cities ultimately led to Rome, which was going to come advantageous in the book of Acts when the church is scattered throughout the known world and the gospel starts to spread throughout the known world. There was already an infrastructure for the spreading of the gospel. The Romans had accommodated that with their Roman roads. Roman laws protected the rights of citizens and the Roman soldiers guarded the peace. Thanks to the Greek and Roman conquest, Latin and Greek were known across the empire. There was going to be a common language in which the New Testament could be written, Corne Greek, so that everyone in every corner of the empire could read and understand the word of God, the New Testament. Thanks to the Romans. Thanks to God, but you know what I mean. And so it's often asked, you know, why did he not come sooner? Why didn't mankind have the benefits of the incarnation straight out and the atonement immediately after the fall? I mean, that would seem logical, wouldn't it? Adam and Eve sinned, send the Savior, fix the problem. Why didn't that happen? Why are 4,000 dark and gloomy years allowed to roll on before the Savior comes? Why was the world allowed to suffer and sink deeper and deeper into ignorance and sin before the Savior comes? Well, there's perhaps no entirely satisfactory answer that be given to that. You can ask the Lord that one when you get to glory. But I do know this, that God undoubtedly saw reasons which you and I cannot see. And I do know that it was seen by God to be the best time. He waited 4,000 years and you can guarantee that God had a very good reason for that. And we know that the time when the whole, when he did come, the whole of humanity would benefit the most by his coming. The birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Christ at Bethlehem was no accident. It was by divine appointment. It was in the fullness of time, we're told in Ephesians. Uh, sorry, Galatians. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. The ancient promise of a redeemer was now about to be fulfilled. And from that you and I can learn that God never acts at a time of our choosing. But he always acts at a time of his choosing. Like Israel, you know, so often we want God to act now. But God's timing is always perfect. Sometimes we may get frustrated and even give up because things aren't moving the way that we want them to move. But God's not ready yet. We want to do something for God, but our plans are frustrated. So we get frustrated because God is not ready yet. Sometimes we like to put God on hold until the time is convenient for us. But when God gets ready to work, he isn't going to confer with us and make sure it's okay by us for him to work. When God is ready to work, God works according to his schedule, his plan and his will, not according to our plan and our will. And we need to understand that. And Luke chapter 1 and 2 explain that to us very clearly. 
Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11 says this, And whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of him that worketh, who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. God works everything out according to his own will. And throughout the Bible we have a story after story about God intervening in his own time. And after 400 silent years, God chooses this time in the Israel's history to burst into the scene and to intervene in the affairs of mankind with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist to Zacharias and Elizabeth and ultimately with the announcement of the birth of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. God chooses this time because this time is his time. And what a blessing it is to read the story of Luke 1 and Luke 2. And I trust it will be a blessing to us and you and I need to remember that we need to be ready so that when God is ready to work, we are ready to respond. Let's never forget that God's work, and that God works on his time schedule, not ours. He's never early. He's never late. He's always on time. And you and I just need to be ready. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you this morning for the Gospel of Luke. We thank you, Father God, for this introduction. Father, you choose the time to intervene. You choose the time to enact your will. You choose the time to do what you want to do. And Lord, help us to be ready to act when you choose to intervene. Lord, help us to glean from these two chapters of Luke up to now and Christmas blessings that will encourage us and God, our time now as we dismiss this grass in Jesus' name.